What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. The former Marine accused of killing a homeless man in a New York City subway in court today. Find out his charges and how he pleads. Investigating the effect offshore wind turbines can have on military operations. Some lawmakers say the wind farms can affect radar and more. People driving into New York City could soon be subject to a huge fee if they enter the Central Business District. You're going to learn more about the fee some drivers call ridiculous. Former President Trump is countersuing the woman who claimed he assaulted her in a department store. He's crying defamation over her claims of rape after a jury ruled it out. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is on the former Marine sergeant accused of fatally strangling a homeless man in a New York subway car. He pleaded not guilty today. He is charged with manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. 24-year-old Daniel Penny was captured in videos recorded by bystanders. He put Jordan Neely in a chokehold for several minutes on a subway train in Manhattan. The killing drew national attention and sparked protests. Penny says he acted to defend himself and other passengers and did not intend to kill Neely. The incident renewed debate around the city's care for the homeless and mentally ill. The former Marine had been released on a $100,000 bond at an earlier hearing. He was told to return to court on October 25th for a pretrial hearing. The charge of manslaughter in the second degree carries a maximum sentence of 15 years. Criminally negligent homicide carries a maximum sentence of five years. Offshore wind farms could negatively affect American military operations along U.S. coasts. That's what some lawmakers are saying, and they're calling for more investigation. Here's the story. Some lawmakers are calling for a halt on offshore wind farms, which are being installed on the East Coast. That's due to concerns over animals that are being impacted, as well as American military operations. Earlier this week, lawmakers met with stakeholders and officials from the Government Accountability Office, or GAO. The GAO recently agreed to investigate wind farms and the impact they have on military operations. Republican Congressman Chris Smith told Fox News the wind farms will impact marine radar through sonic interference. It causes disruptions, shadowing. The Coast Guard, too, will not be able to do search and rescue, particularly in bad weather, because of the gross interference that will happen. He added that it can also affect the Navy's undersea surveillance system and could block detection of foreign submarines in U.S. water. Concerns over the wind farms and their possible effect first came up months ago when dead whales started washing up along New Jersey's shore. Congressman Smith was on Fox at the time explaining how making such big installments can disrupt sea life. 3,400 turbines that will go deep into the seabed. We're talking about, you know, a, a pole that is three football fields long. It'll have to be driven in by a pile driver of some sort. He added that the noise this generates can be a big problem. However, some scientists with the NOAA and Greenpeace say the wind farms did not contribute to an increase in whale deaths. Smith then went on to address something he indicates is an even bigger issue with wind farms. Take a look. We have hurricanes. Remember Sandy? Wasn't even, it was a superstorm. Uh, we've had Category 3s, Hurricane Donna, some years back. He added that there are studies suggesting turbines could fall over during storms. President Biden is going on tour. That's so he can promote his economic plan and reassure Americans that Bidenomics is working. An economist weighs in on this and offers some insight on the U.S. economy more broadly. 
Joining me now is Daniel Lacaille, Chief Economist at Tresses. Daniel, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Yes, President Biden likened his so-called historic investment for high-speed Internet to Franklin D. Roosevelt's Electrification Act, which brought electricity to all American homes and farms. Do you see this as a good investment within the framework of Bidenomics? Well, I think it's a good investment. I think that it should not be done by the government, to be fairly honest. Uh, if we uh, remember precisely what he is mentioning, the Electrification Act, the uh, end game ended up being a very large level of malinvestment, very inefficient level of investment. Obviously, it was washed out throughout the years, but ultimately, if what we really want is high-speed connection, uh, good telecommunication infrastructures, what the United States is less regulatory burdens and to allow the businesses, the companies, to actually implement it in the most efficient and cost-effective way. The risk that we face if this uh, program is implemented by the government is what happened in Europe and particularly in some of the southern European economies, which is that it ended up being hugely over uh, extended in terms of the time frame to implement it, but most importantly, also hugely more expensive than was initially budgeted. Ultimately, uh, this needs to be a combination of public and private investment in which the public part is mostly to facilitate, not to actually uh, put the money on. So, it's a, yes, it's a good investment, but it's only a good investment if the initial capital deployed is not massively overspent. Yes, and inefficiencies are a problem in that case. And thanks for helping us understand the broader context around this. Daniel, in your article, you make the case that bloated U.S. government spending is concealing a recession that's actually taking place in the private sector. Can you explain your reasoning? Well, if we look at the gross domestic product and the calculation of gross domestic product, it's pretty evident. Uh, the biggest components of the of, of the factors that have uh, avoided a recession in the United States have been much lower imports coming from the lower price of commodities that the United States imports from all over the world, and also from a much larger government spending. If we look at real consumption, and if we look at private investment, those are already showing that the uh, the level of growth of the of what we could call the productive economy in the United States is actually almost inexistent and in uh, most cases recessionary. The reality of the private sector is that small and medium enterprises, that families are suffering in real terms and that margins are compressed, that real disposable income as I said, in real terms, the government tends to talk about nominal terms. Obviously, inflation disguises it. So the, if we look at the private sector, 
which is what matters in the United States, it is already in a recession if we look at the combination of the manufacturing indicators, the uh, real consumption, the real disposable income, and the uh, and also, and very important, how the savings ratio of citizens has been almost consumed. Well, Daniel, you have a very unique claim with a lot of supporting evidence. Daniel Lakai, Chief Economist at Tresses, it's great hearing from you today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. The White House is ridiculed by critics for saying President Biden's economic record is incredibly popular. That assessment came from the White House Principal Deputy Secretary at a press briefing. Well, what I would say is that the president's economic policies are incredibly popular. When you ask people what they think about investing in our roads, bridges, and uh, airports, what you, when you ask people what they think about educating and empowering workers, when you ask people about how they feel about reshoring manufacturing jobs and investing in America, those things are incredibly popular. The president is also expected to tout his economic policies in an upcoming speech. Reporters commented that Biden's economic policies aren't popular, and they wondered how the speech would affect his campaign. Dalton countered and attempted to describe the economic successes. She said people who the White House talks to support Bidenomics. The criticism of Dalton's comments didn't end at the press briefing. Conservative social media users saw disconnects between the White House statements and their view on the economic effects. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre made similar positive claims about what the president has done with the economy in a press briefing on Monday. Former President Trump has filed a counterclaim lawsuit against the author who said he raped her in a dressing room in the 1990s. A jury found that Trump did not rape E. Jean Carroll, something the former president himself repeatedly denied. Trump's counterclaim comes just a month after he was ordered to pay $5 million in damages to Carroll. That's after a jury found him liable for battery and defamation. Trump's counterclaim states that Carroll damaged his reputation by accusing him of rape during her appearance on CNN one day after a jury found that Carroll did not prove that Trump raped her. Trump also stressed that he did not know Carol and took aim at the fact that she was unsure when the alleged incident took place. It was for her second lawsuit the jury awarded Carol $5 million in damages, including $2 million for sexual abuse and around $3 million for defamation. More coverage coming up. Small businesses in Los Angeles struggle amid the Hollywood writer's strike. It's unclear how long the walkout will last, but the impact is growing. Harrison Ford weighs in on the likeliness of an AI version of Indiana Jones. The 80-year-old actor just saw himself de-aged in the fifth installment of the Adventure series. Stay tuned for more on that in just a moment. Welcome back. A hefty new fee is coming to New York City drivers. The city plans to charge a daily toll on vehicles entering or remaining in the Central Business District. And the plan just got the go-ahead from the U.S. Department of Transportation. Here are the details. 
Drivers through Lower Manhattan face a new traffic congestion charge next year of $23 a day, making New York the first major U.S. city to implement such a program. And how do New Yorkers feel about it? That's crazy. This driver says the cost is extortionate. I can't really afford that because I drive to work five days a week and it's ridiculous. And how much do I make a week for me to be paying $23? I have to pay for the garage and then pay $23 in addition. A taxi driver said more tolls would pass the cost on to his passengers. Every passenger that I pick is paying congestion charges already, so I don't know why I have to pay and then pick up the money for them. So I'm not going to do that. And this food vendor says it would eat into his profits. Every day, if we make $200, we have to spend $150 for your supply and cost and everything. So if it's $23, so it's not good for no one. It's not good for no one for the city. If we do, the, do this one, so nobody want to do the business in the city. Despite the naysaying, the plan is going ahead. Federal authorities gave it the green light on Monday, passing the government's environmental review process. The congestion fees kick in next year and charge drivers variable rates once they enter New York's Central Business District, which is defined as streets between 60th and Midtown Manhattan to Battery Park on the island's southern tip. This day was coming for a long time, but it was a thoughtful, methodical process. New York Governor Kathy Hochul quoted a 2022 study at a press conference that estimates the congestion charges could cut 15 to 20 percent of traffic in Manhattan. The plan to introduce congestion charges was approved in 2019. New York lawmakers hoped it could provide funding to improve the city's mass transit network. New York City is reportedly set to force pizza restaurants with brick and wood-fired ovens to reduce their carbon emissions. That applies if the ovens were installed before 2016, and emissions need to be reduced by up to 75 percent. They'll have to install an emissions control device to do so, or if they can't, they need to explain why and still cut emissions by a quarter. Let's get some insight into the stated reason and other possible reasons for this. Joining me now is Jeffrey Tucker, Epic Times senior columnist and founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Jeffrey, I'm really looking forward to an interesting discussion on this. Yeah, sure. No, it's an important topic. Yes, absolutely. Now, the city says putting these restrictions on pizza restaurants is done because the city is experiencing pollution in some of these neighborhoods and that these yeah. are, well, according to the Department of Environmental Protection, these stoves are the main culprit leading to that. I, so, I, in your view, does this rule make sense? No, I mean, there's no world in which th these uh, things are the main uh, main culprit and uh, or even a, a measurable contributor at all. This is all just uh, deep state New York City bureaucrats targeting something that's really famous in the city. They have this habit of going after the things that we love, you know, functioning appliances or uh, just whatever it happens to be, they hate it. And, but it seems like they've gone too far with this attack on pizza. I mean, some of these ovens are 100 years old, and it's it's the main food for which New York is famous, uh, literally all over the world. So there's a lot of outrage, and and rightly so. This has nothing has nothing to do with the air quality in New York City. I mean, the air quality in New York City is terrible for sure. Actually, it's been terrible for 
140 years. <laughs> so, um, and it's not the it's not the it's not the pizzas. It's just the city and the way it is. Now, recently, uh, we've had more problems of a different sort of uh, nature, and that has to do with wildfires in Canada. But that, uh, in turn, is related to the burn policies of the Canadian government. You know, it's the same thing in Australia, and well, actually, for that matter, California. These lands are being terribly uh, administered, and they're not—they're not, they're not uh, they're pursuing rational policies that would burn off the excess. And so then it just builds up, and it turns into these terrible wildfires. So, uh, it, and that—that that in turn has nothing to do with climate change. This is just bad forest management. So, of course, Jeffrey, no one likes itchy eyes, and we saw some of that with these smoke coming in from these wildfires and New Yorkers love their pizza now to your point there has been a war on gas stoves that we've seen now according to the American Lung Association though wood burning stoves can produce fine particle pollution VOCs and nitrogen oxides that said though are we headed to a slippery slope with this new restriction uh, for sure I mean uh, uh, cooks know that you have to cook with gas and and again this is actually a neg negligible contributor overall to, uh, to to if you believe that there's actually a problem it's not it's not this you know there was a New York Post writer who said that one flight coming out of um, by a politician in a, in a private plane emits more emissions, uh, CO2, than you know, something like 529 years of all the uh, coal and wood-burning uh, pizzeria stoves in the whole city, which I thought was an interesting uh, remark and an interesting observation. So these people are really distorted. They often go, go after the problems that uh, impact our lives most immediately while neglecting the big problems. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about this, the one, the one that's most famous in my mind. About 20 years ago, uh, the EPA eliminated all phosphates from detergent, which is a major reason why it's hard to get clean clothes these days. Uh, it's actually almost impossible with the broken uh, washing machines and everything else. Well, they said it was because the phosphates were clogging the rivers and the streams. Uh, by causing algae to grow and crowding out fish, but later, you know, research into this sh showed that that domestic use of phosphates and detergent was a, a negligible contributor, if anything at all. And the main culprits for this were factory farms and and big agriculture that were dumping all their fertilizers into the lakes and rivers. I mean, once you say it, it's, it seems perfectly obvious. But they don't want to attack the big businesses because they've got political connections. So they go after all of us, pretend to be solving the problem by making our, our lives less, uh, less quality la lives and less freedom. Well, thanks for helping us sort through all of these things here. Jeffrey Tucker, president of the Brownstone Institute, it's always great speaking with you. Okay, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. More Hollywood strikes are likely coming this summer, with many expected to join the picket lines. We are SAG after strong in solidarity with the WGA. That solidarity may soon lead to striking together. More than 300 members of the Screen Actors Guild have signed a letter obtained by Rolling Stone saying they'd rather go on strike than compromise on important issues. Among those who signed the letter, Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, Rami Malek, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Ben Stiller, and Amy Poehler. The Screen Actors contract with the studios expires Friday. The Writers Guild has been on strike since May 2nd. 
Small businesses in Los Angeles and beyond are taking a hit from the Hollywood writer strike. Florists, caterers, costume suppliers, and others have seen orders dwindle. And it's unclear how long the walkout will last. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the latest on this. Before Hollywood writers walked off the job in early May, Prop House History for Hire filled an average of 53 requests a week. But the Writers Guild of America strike has halted many film and TV productions. Even though there is a strike going on and there's a work stoppage, it doesn't stop my staff's rent. It certainly doesn't stop my rent. It doesn't stop our utilities. It doesn't stop our cost of living. Weekly orders this year now average 26. Elia says revenue has dropped 60%. The biggest toll of a strike, of course, is the human toll. And it is the amount of people that uh, they get marginalized, which is horrible. I mean, everybody in this business is important, above the line, below the line. And those of us that work below the credits, you know, that we run small businesses. Dozens of scripted television projects would usually be in production for the fall broadcast season. In mid-June, Los Angeles issued just three permits to film in the city. Businesses like that do what I do, there's hundreds of thousands of us in this town that, you know, if, if I'm not renting to shows, that means I'm not using the dry cleaner, I'm not using the guy who does the plating, I'm not using the welders, so everybody gets affected. It's too early to measure the full economic toll. But the 100-day WGA strike in 2007 and 2008 could be an indicator of the outcome. The Milken Institute, an economic think tank, estimates that walkout resulted in the loss of nearly 38,000 jobs in California and cost the state $2.1 billion. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Harrison Ford returns in the upcoming Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. The 80-year-old commented on the possibility of making a full-length feature film using his AI-generated image as a younger man. It won't work. You've got to have the contest there. You've got to be on a set with people saying, you know, uh, this, this is not quite, this? yeah, what do we try to do this, do that, do the other thing. You can't just sit down and, and type it out. It's not, it's not real. You need real people, real contest, real uh, uh, communication. The latest movie hits theaters this Friday. At the start of the movie, a digitally de-aged Ford plays Indiana Jones fighting the Nazis, trying to get a half of the dial of destiny. The film proves that actors don't need to be there for a younger presentation of the character. Ford said he won't be back for more artifact-related escapades, but added the character of Indiana Jones will always have a fond place in his heart. Stay tuned for home prices dropping year over year by the most since 2011. What's the current state of the housing market? We'll dive deeper into this. Twitter owner Elon Musk is seen sparring in training photos as he prepares for an upcoming match against Metahead Mark Zuckerberg. That and more when we return.
Welcome back. U.S. home prices fell in April from a year earlier, the first year-over-year price decline in 11 years. Higher mortgage rates made home purchases more expensive, according to the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index. But is this what the average buyer sees when looking for a home? NTD Business's Don Ma speaks to a housing market veteran. Here with me is Robert Helms, veteran housing market analyst and host of the Real Estate Guys show. Now, Robert, U.S. home prices saw the first year-over-year decline since 2012, according to S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index. Now, is that representative of what's happening in the housing market? Are homes' uh, prices actually declining? Well, that's a great question, Don. You know, the Case-Shiller Index covers either 10 or 20 cities, depending on which you look at. And it obviously doesn't uh, cover the entire housing market, but it does give us a good snapshot of what's happening. So I think that if we look out in general, we see that this price decline has people a little concerned. But you have to understand that's a year-over-year price decline, albeit the first one we've seen in over 10 years. But if you look at the index compared to last month, it's actually up a little bit. So part of it is that April a year ago uh, had really good housing numbers. And so we are seeing a little bit of a decline. And I do think it's representative in certain markets of what the local economy is feeling. Let's just say a regular home buyer is looking for a home. Um, would they be expecting prices higher than before? In many areas, they do, only because people are reluctant to sell. And we've talked about this, but the idea that someone who would have had their house on the market had interest rates stayed similar has decided, you know, I'm going to keep my 3% loan instead of getting a new 7% loan and has elected not to sell. For that reason, there's less inventory. And when there's less inventory, certain home buyers must buy and they're forced to pay a little higher price. Right. This inventory, are we talking about new homes or existing home sales? Yeah, great question. So those things are normally separated out. We look at existing homes or resale homes differently than new homes. Existing homes are where we're seeing the tightness because we've got folks that are already in place with a mortgage payment that they can handle, and they're not sure they want to either make a lateral or upward move because of the rapid increase in interest rates. Now, I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that if if the Federal Reserve starts cutting interest rates, I mean, perhaps mortgage rates over the long run would come down and more people would be open to selling, increasing inventory, and that's how prices may come down. That's a great point. And in a market where we're feeling that con- that very well could happen. We have folks out there that are thinking about moving, would be moving, have a reason to move, like adding an addition to the family or just needing more space, and they've been hesitant because of the mortgage rates. As soon as we see a change in their favor, some of those folks are going to be ready to move, and that will uh, probably give us more inventory in the market. How soon people snap up that inventory will be the question, because folks looking to buy those houses will be faced with the same lowering interest rate. Now, if someone is looking to uh, purchase a home, um, what are some suggestions you have for them? So if you're thinking about buying a home today, I think the first thing is you have more time. Uh, You don't have that clock ticking. There was a period, you know, a year and a half ago where if you didn't make your offer, uh, prices went up $40,000 the next month. That's not necessarily happening right now. So I think people have time to think through. I know when we made a big move years ago, we decided to rent for a year. Even though I'm a real estate guy, I didn't know the market very well. 
Now, today I live in the same house that I used to rent. I just own it. So it's a different story. But I do think if people are thinking about buying a house, they just need to be prudent, spend a little time with a great realtor, learn the market first, don't jump at the first thing you see. And if you do it right, rates may come down a little bit while you're looking. All right. Thank you very much today, Robert. Always great to see you. Thanks, Don. Turning now to an incident that has gone wrong. A Florida man who fired at least 30 rounds at his pool cleaner won't face charges due to the Castle Doctrine. The Pinellas County Sheriff says Bradley Hosevar thought he was defending himself and his wife from an intruder. Instead, the person entering their Tampa area property on June 15th was Carl Polek, who regularly cleaned the couple's pool. He was there on a different day than usual and failed to alert the family. The sheriff says the homeowner fired two shots and Pollock ran. Then he fired about 30 more rounds and shrapnel from bullets and glass caused Pollock minor injuries. The Supreme Court has rejected a lower court's decision to uphold the stalking conviction of a Colorado man. He sent hundreds of messages to a woman on Facebook. The justices decided the standard used to convict the man was wrong. They sent the case back, saying prosecutors need to prove the accused knew his words could be seen as threatening. It's possible the Supreme Court's decision could make it harder to prove what qualifies as an online threat. An Elon Musk sparring partner is impressed with the entrepreneur's fighting skills. That's ahead of Musk's mixed martial arts bout against Metahead Mark Zuckerberg. His sparring partner is Lex Fridman a scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He posted photos in the form from, the sp- from the sparring partner session on Twitter. One photo shows Musk with Friedman in an arm bar. Another shows him throwing Friedman over his shoulder. Musk is set to face Zuckerberg in a match that has not yet been scheduled. The idea for the match came from Musk. He challenged Zuckerberg on Twitter to a cage match. At the time, he and others were discussing Meta's upcoming Twitter competitor site. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, a group of social media influencers are under fire for endorsing fashion company Shein. Find out why many are criticizing them for promoting the clothing brand. 2,700 human trafficking victims were rescued in the Philippines. The victims are connected to cybercrime operations. We'll have more on that for you shortly here on NTD News Today. Great to have you back with us. A group of social media influencers is facing backlash after a recent trip to China. They were invited to tour a Xi'an factory in Guangzhou. The influencers showered praise on the Chinese clothing company during the visit, but many online suggest they were shown a false picture of what's really going on. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Multiple tags say need your help. A social media influencer told her half-million followers on Instagram that she's more confident than ever in her partnership with Xi'an after visiting the company's factory in Guangzhou, China. Another that toured the factory said she was pleasantly surprised. But is the company as ethical as it claims? The factory was one of thousands that Xi'an uses. The fast fashion retailer is accused of using forced labor in its clothing supply chains. 
A bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers sent a letter to the chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in May, claiming there are credible allegations of Xi'an using underpaid and forced labor. U.S. senators penned a letter to Xi'an's CEO earlier this year over concerns of the company using cotton from China's Xinjiang region. A menswear writer on Twitter took issue with the influencer's endorsement. He says in his post that he can't help but feel that these influencers were chosen to make Xi'an look progressive to a Western audience, while the company runs a sweatshop in the back to make clothes out of polyester and lead. A CBC Marketplace investigation found some Xi'an items had high levels of chemicals in them, like lead. Health Canada issued a recall for a toddler jacket in 2021. It contained close to 20 times the legal amount of lead for a product allowed to be sold in Canada. Others online said the influencers are taking away from the work of investigative journalists and Xi'an factory workers who risked everything to film the reality of Xi'an's workplace conditions. An influencer strategist on TikTok accused the influencers of acting as PR crisis managers and advised them to be more cautious when accepting partnerships. Xi'an is valued at close to $100 billion and churns out over 6,000 new designs a day on average. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Staying in Asia, Philippine authorities rescued over 2,700 alleged human trafficking victims after raiding a commercial building in a Manila suburb connected with cybercrime. Police were seen entering the compound on Wednesday. They told local media that those rescued include people from the Philippines, China, Indonesia, and other countries. Authorities say they were swindled into working for fraudulent gaming sites and carrying out scamming activities Police are still determining if the workers are part of a syndicate or victims of human trafficking. Foreign nationals deemed victims will be returned to their home countries. In May, leaders of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations expressed concerns over the growing number of human trafficking incidents connected with online fraud. Cambodian authorities set ablaze nearly six tons of seized illegal drugs. A ceremony was held today in the nation's capital. The drugs were seized from mid-2022 until recently, including cocaine, heroin, and meth, along with other illegal, addictive substances. Cambodia's interior minister praised the cooperative relationship with neighboring countries to stop the trafficking. The burning ritual marked this week's World Drug Day. It began internationally on Monday, but Cambodian officials delayed it due to busy work schedules. In Cambodia, trafficking more than 2.8 ounces of illegal drugs carries a penalty of life in prison. Residents in the Japanese prefecture of Okinawa woke up to quite a sight this morning. The waters around the fishing port of Nago were a completely different color. Images taken by the Coast Guard showed red bay waters. This cause is believed to be a leak from a brewery which saw coolant flowing into a connecting river. Just ahead, an exhibition in Italy presents the Renaissance master Luca Signorelli. His paintings are said to have inspired Michelangelo and Raphael. Bullfighting has waned in recent years amid the objections of animal rights activists, but it remains a large part of Spain's cultural heritage. Stay tuned for more on that when we come back.
Welcome back. You're just in time for an up-close encounter with Luca Cinarelli, forerunner of Renaissance Giants Michelangelo and Raphael. An exhibition in the Tuscan town of Cortana is offering a unique opportunity to learn more about the master painter. In the heart of Italy, an exhibit unveils Luca Signorelli, a master of Renaissance painting. We present Luca Signorelli not as the last artist of the 15th century, but the first artist of the 16th century. Somebody who should be ranked with Raphael and Michelangelo, both of whom drew inspiration from him. Signorelli was recognized as a talent by his contemporaries, though his reputation declined in the 19th and 20th centuries. There are a number of explanations for why Signorelli fell from immediate fame. We entered the era of the cult of Leonardo, where the Mona Lisa or the Gioconda in Paris became the world's most famous painting. Before that time, it was a much more even perception of the Renaissance, and certainly collectors in the 19th century bought Signorelli whenever they possibly could and tracked him down across central Italy. An extraordinary innovator of the Renaissance, Signorelli created figures that conveyed passion, pity, outrage, and hope. Signorelli's art is marked by an extraordinary colorism, by an intense awareness of form, and particularly its sculptural potential, all done in two-dimensional painting. But lastly, by something that really marks him out from his contemporaries, which was his powers of visual imagination and invention. He would reread a traditional subject and give it a new emphasis. And this is seen throughout the works in this exhibition. These elements, combined with his dramatic use of light and the creation of highly unusual natural views, inspired future artists. Michelangelo, for example, was said to have drawn upon Signorelli as he frescoed the Sistine Chapel. The exhibition features around 30 Signorelli works from museums around the world. Notable among them are all parts of the Metallica altarpiece found to date. It was painted around 1504 for Italy's Church of Sant'Agostino, but was dispersed in the mid-18th century and sent all around the world. Collecting its fragments is part of an effort to bring all of Signorelli's works back to his hometown five centuries after his death. Today, seven are known, and for the first time we find all seven in an exhibition. Some are owned by public museums, others by private collectors. But it's an operation that, from a scientific point of view, can finally bring a lot of novelty. The exhibition is on view through October 8th. In Spain, bullfighting remains a large part of the nation's cultural heritage, but over the last few years, the industry has been struggling. Here's the details on the tradition. Mariam Cava is trying on her new matador suit, or traje de luces, meaning suit of lights. Her family has been involved in bullfighting for generations. At 21, she's among the few young female matadors. Yes, it is true. I don't know how to explain it, but we are suffering a bad moment, a crisis that all professions go through, but bullfighting has indeed decreased. Bullfighting is illegal in countries like the UK, Denmark, and Italy, but it still takes place in Spain, Portugal, France, and Mexico. Cava says it's growing in popularity among young people. 
Pero sinceramente ahora sí. I believe it is booming among young people, and people are eager to learn and go to the bull rings, and especially eager to learn about the profession, the countryside, the Spanish fighting bull, which is the most beautiful animal in the world. According to the Spanish Culture and Sports Ministry, just 2.5% of registered bullfighters were women in 2021. But bulls don't see gender. All they see is a worthy adversary. I consider myself a bullfighter. I always say I put myself in the same place as my colleagues. I take the same risks as my colleagues. I train for the same amount of time as my colleagues. This is not a man's or a woman's thing. It's a bullfighter's thing. Many Spaniards are proud of their bullfighting culture, but animal rights activists are critical. We really protest, first of all, for public money not to be destined to animal abuse, and that they stop thinking that it's a tradition, because the citizens are showing that they choose a different kind of leisure, where animals are not mistreated. Bullfighting has been on the decline for years. Registered bullfighters decreased from over 6,000 in 2017 to less than 5,000 in 2021. The number of bullfights decreased by more than 40 percent in 2021 compared to 2019 as well. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The fastest growing sport in the U.S. appears to be causing millions of dollars in health care bills. UBS analysts say pickleball accounts for about 5 to 10 percent of unexpected medical costs. That's over $370 million. One factor is that seniors tend to play it, and a 2021 study shows they account for the vast majority of related ER visits. Common injuries include sprains, strains, and fractures. UBS estimates the number of people who play pickleball could reach 22 million this year. You can eat and drink your way to better mental health. Next time you're out shopping, pop these time-tested and scientifically proven mood foods in your cart. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Many doctors generally advocate pills to treat anxiety, but evidence shows they can have negative side effects. These include addiction, depression, suicide, seizures, sexual dysfunction, and headaches. Practitioners of natural health generally believe that lifestyle changes are the best medicine, particularly the food we eat. Some foods are better than others when it comes to soothing mind and body. Let's look at five top foods that can induce calm and well-being, starting with number one, fish. Consider cold water fish such as salmon, cod, mackerel and sardines. Increasing your intake of fish may help to relieve anxiety by promoting a healthy brain and enhanced mood. That's because these fish are rich in essential amino acids and healthy omega-3 fatty acids. Next, let's look at number two, nuts. Many essential proteins and fats can be found in nuts. You'll want to consider Brazil nuts, almonds, and walnuts. Nuts provide vitamin E and the mineral selenium. Both of these are proven to reduce anxious feelings. Next on the list is yogurt. Fermented foods such as yogurt have long been acknowledged as beneficial for gut health. That's because of the presence of friendly bacteria known as probiotics. Probiotics can help to protect the gastrointestinal tract against harmful pathogens and potentially dangerous microbes. Science acknowledges fermented foods' positive effect on brain health and even mood. 
Number four on the list is green tea. Drinking tea is a great way to boost your brain's ability to ward off stress. A 2009 study was conducted in Japan, which is one of the largest consumer countries of green tea. It found that those who drank more than five cups per day had less stress than those who drank less than one cup per day. In other words, the more you drink, the better you feel. So put on the kettle and start feeling better. And finally, number five on the list is chocolate. At afternoon tea, why not break off a square or two of dark chocolate? Dark chocolate is clinically shown to improve anxiety and deliver a potent feel-good boost of serotonin. Look for a brand high in cacao and low in harmful sugars, additives and hydrogenated oils. So if you want to improve your mood, consider fish, nuts, yogurt, green tea and dark chocolate. Our last story today, some quick thinking by some Arizona police officers helped save a dog that was stuck in a canal. The German Shepherd somehow became stuck in the canal and was swimming back and forth. A passerby called police and two officers responded. One tried to swim to the dog and get a leash around it, but it was having none of that. Then the other officer remembered his wife had packed him some pumpkin muffins for his shift. And the bribery worked. The German Shepherd munched on the muffin and the officers managed to get it out of the water. The dog was not hurt and once on land it got to enjoy some more muffins for its trouble. This happened on June 17th in Glendale. The police department posted the video on its Facebook page. And that's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan.